Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Kellen McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with coverage from a recent rally at which faith and climate groups urged TD and other banks to stop funding fossil fuels. Then... Amazon's all but one warehouse in Schenectady voted not to unionize. Reverend Ibrahim Pedrinan, who was there, will join us to talk about it. Later on, we hear about uh, Electric Cities of the Future and the upcoming events from Future of Small Cities Institute. And after that, we have a second part of his speech from HVCC President Dr. Roger A. Ramsamin addressing his controversy around his tenure and about his vision for the school. Finally, we have the first of weekly poetry segment by Thomas Franchin of Hudson Mohawk Writers Guild. But first, here are the headlines. Sina? By a two-to-one margin, workers at the Amazon warehouse voted not to join the union. Organizers cited a number of reasons for the defeat, including a recent $1 per hour pay hike and an aggressive push by Amazon executives to convince workers in mandatory staff meetings that they were better off without a union, including highlighting that the union would have charged $5 a week dues. The grandparents of children found with their dying mother in a McClellan Street home in Schenectady, with floors covered with trash and walls smeared with feces, are suing state and local child fare Uh, child welfare agencies, as well as the schools the children attended, alleging that the organization for years ignored obvious signs of abuse and neglect. Last month, the Times Union reported on years of investigation of the family family by child welfare workers that always ended with children remaining in the mother's care and caseworkers deemed unfounded uh, allegations of abuse, mistreatment, or neglect. Musicians Health and Wellness Day, a free clinic for uninsured and underinsured musicians, will be from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Sunday at Cafe Lena. As freelancers, musicians don't get employer-provided health care. The clinic will provide blood pressure screening, dietitian consultations, HIV and hepatitis C screenings, a limited supply of custom-fit earplugs, and health insurance navigators helping patients understanding their coverage options. Schenectady County has agreed to pay $562,500 to settle a federal lawsuit filed by a man who suffered injuries, including broken bones and a collapsed lung, when he was beaten by a jail officer nearly two years ago. The city of Cohoes will host its inaugural Cohoes holiday market on weekends from November 26th to December 23rd on Remsen Street. Modeled after Christmas gift markets held in Germantown squares for more than 500 years and now popular in many countries and dozens of American cities, the market will have 10 vendors. French cement company Lafarge, which operates a plant in Ravina, pleaded guilty Tuesday to paying millions of dollars to the Islamic State group so that the plant in Syria could remain open, a case that the Justice Department described as the first of its kind. The company agreed to pay criminal fines of roughly $91 million and forfeit an additional $687 million for total penalty of roughly $778 million. And that's it for the headlines, Sina. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. 
listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. So first, more than 100 people gathered at East Capitol Park on October 14th to protest ongoing financing of fossil fuel projects by TD Bank and other financial institutions. Mark Dunley was there to report. An assembly of local faith leaders led a climate demonstration of more than 100 people Friday uh, by the state capital in Albany, calling upon banks and other financial institutions to halt investments and new fossil fuel projects and redirect funds towards renewable energy. More than 20 groups co-sponsored the event organized by River and Mountains Green Faith Circle. The Stop Funding Climate Chaos is a nationwide campaign led by Stop the Money Pipeline. Friday's actions targeted TD Bank on Eagle Street. Um, TD Bank is one of the largest bankers of Tar Sands projects and the Trans Mountain Pipeline in Canada. Uh, the procession from Academy Park uh, was led by four members of the Rebel Red Rebel Brigade who draw attention with their silent plea uh, to acknowledge climate collapse and to mourn environmental losses. We hear first from Michael Richardson, a lead organizer with Rivers and Mountains. Michael Richardson, I'm the co-founder of Rivers and Mountains Greenface Circle. And we're here today with one single purpose, and that's to speak on the moral imperative to stop funding new fossil fuel projects. And let me add, invest in renewables. And you had about 100 people out here today. Um, is that a good turnout? And any reaction from TD Bank? Well, the only reaction we got from TD Bank is that they would take our letter and move it on. Now, earlier there was a press release where they said that they would be net zero by 2050. Now, I'll be 98 that year, Mark. I'll be 98. I think it's a little bit too far into the future. Yes, I did hear some of the speakers say six years would be a better timeline. Well, as you know, uh, TD Bank may say that they're reducing the amount of fossil fuels they're digging up. But the fact of it is, in the past two years, they put more fossil fuel, they've dug more investments into fossil fuel than any year before. And final question, if people want to follow up both on Prussian TD Bank, but also the whole issue of getting the banks to stop financing fossil fuels, how best can they do that or find out information? Well, one of the best sources to go to is Stop the Money Pipeline. You can go to the website, Stop the Money Pipeline. We're a coalition member of them. Or you can go to 350.org. There is both very good sources to go to. Barbara Spink of the Capital Region Interfaith Creation Care Coalition read the letter that the faith leaders and groups delivered to TD Bank. We, a diverse group of faith communities and people, are here today to deliver a simple and urgent message TD Bank and the TD companies to which it belongs must immediately stop funding new fossil fuel projects. According to the most recent reports of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the internationally accepted authority on human-induced climate change, the world must take quick and bold action to reverse our reliance on fossil fuels in order to avoid climate catastrophe. 
in reacting to the IPCC reports, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has said, the scientific and moral imperative is clear. There must be no new investment in fossil fuel expansion, including production, infrastructure, and exploration. The world's climate scientists are telling us that we are currently on a fast track to climate disaster, and the financing of new fossil fuel infrastructure puts that into even higher gear. And yet, in just the last five years alone, TD companies have invested more than $121 billion in new fossil fuel projects. Perhaps the most egregious among these many projects is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The construction of this pipeline would violate treaties with indigenous peoples, endanger major waterways, and devastate pristine lands, all while fostering the accelerated development of Alberta tar sands oil, the world's dirtiest, most climate-disrupting oil. We implore TD Bank, the TD conglomerate, and all large banks, insurance companies, asset managers, and institutional investors to immediately cease the funding and insuring of fossil fuel projects and to realign their business interests with the hopes, aspirations, and rights of humanity and the natural world by investing instead in the clean, renewable energy we need for our habitable planet. The moral precepts of our various faiths, value systems, and codes of ethics compel us to speak out about the sacredness of our shared earth and against the unjust recklessness of new fossil fuel development. Imposing impossible burdens on frontline communities and stealing the future from coming generations is immoral and must stop. Our next speaker is Reverend Dr. Leonis Ardizoni, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth. Is that we actually have six years to make this change. 2050 is far, far too late. The way of capitalism, which is founded upon extraction and exploitation. We treat the earth as something for us to use and discard and abuse. What we need is a spiritual shift towards respect for the earth, for reciprocity between all living creatures on the earth, all humanity, all forms of life, and dare I say, even reverence so that all life may indeed. It is a moral imperative that we change who we are, and that TD Bank and its siblings in horror <laughs> who fund this climate chaos stop now. We do not have 28 years. We have less than six years. I'll breathe in peace when I breathe out. I'll breathe out love. Reverend Jeffrey Porter. I am a Presbyterian minister from Queens. I was looking for something in the scripture about global warming, and you know what? I didn't find anything there. 
you know, thousands of years ago when they wrote the Bible, they didn't have a word for global warming because it didn't exist. But we know that healing is good. But it does say that killing is bad. There is that thing in the, the Ten Commandments saying, thou shalt not kill. I live in a part of New York City where 11 people drowned from a hurricane storm that came along, Hurricane Ida, and they were living in basement apartments. And it came and put so much water in New York City that they couldn't escape. That's because global warming has created greater and greater storms, not just in New York, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Ida, but obviously Hurricane Ian, where my father lives, down in Florida, where they still don't know how many people have died. Now, the unfortunate thing about global warming is it kills poor people more than rich. So this is a moral issue. And when I look in the New Testament, I find out that Jesus only did one thing when he got really angry, he took action. He went and he tipped over the tables of the money changers. And we're here in front of TD Bank calling on them to stop funding fossil fuel growth. Global warming kills. Introduce Reverend John Parlberg from the New York State Council of Churches Executive Committee. The message is clear. We need to move away from fossil fuel use as quickly and as urgently as possible. As the UN Secretary General has said, investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. The World Council of Churches has expressed the concerns of churches around the world about the harmful effects of climate change and the climate crisis and its effects on all creation, especially the vulnerable poor, and have spoken of the moral imperative of invest divesting from fossil fuels for the well-being and sustainability of the whole creation. Pope Francis has called upon us to listen to the cries of the earth and the cries of the poor and has said that therefore divestment is a moral imperative for Catholic institutions. So today we invite TD Bank and other financial institutions to bless creation, not to curse it, to help life flourish, not to destroy it. Their big finance groups are priming the pump of oil. They're pumping oil as if there's no tomorrow. This has been Mark Dunlay for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For more on how our local community is urging climate change accountability, find these stories on our website, mediasanctuary.org. We are joined now by Reverend Ibrahim Pedrinan, uh, the ACCFL president. Welcome. I'm here. How are you? <laughs> Today we got some news on the Amazon unionizing results. Can you break the news to us, please? Absolutely. Well, uh, anytime workers organize, it's always an exciting opportunity. Um, and it looks like we're going to have more opportunities to organize because the results were uh, 406 against and 206 for. So um, not the results that we were hoping for, but um, anytime David goes up against Goliath, you kind of imagine, uh, despite the stories that Goliath is going to win, Amazon spent millions and millions of dollars on uh, busting this uh, this union campaign and this drive, and they had vote no shirts that they were handing out. They were pulling people into meetings to say, "Hey, you, you're on disability. You know, do you have a do you have a lawyer? Uh, are you voting yes?" Uh, 
and you know really kind of intimating that they they wouldn't have anything if they voted yes for the union and and really kind of scare tactic uh on on some of these workers so um it's not the result that we hoped for but anytime anybody stands up and says i deserve a voice and a vote we know that that's a, a really good um a good thing for all workers yeah this this sounds a lot like what the results were from Bessemer, Alabama, where I think the country was expecting uh, unionizing to take place and um, similar feedback from people was that there was some union busting going on. Can you compare the two situations? I Unfortunately, I can't because I just, I don't, I don't know what was going on. I don't know anybody in Bessemer. I mean, mm-hmm. I've heard stories, but you know, like here at least, you know, I, I have the personal connections and the, the people who are able to kind of point out this, that, or the other thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of a rule book um, for, for union busting. And that, that is you, you start people's uh, employment off with captive meetings, captive audience meetings. You pull them, you know, right, right out the gate. You say, you know, the union is a business and they're just here to take your money. And um, there are certain, um, certain things. And then they, you know, they saddle up next to you on your machine or, you know, at your lunch and, and kind of spread these seeds of, of doubt or concern. Um, they, um, they threaten, you know, your, your employment and say, you know, if you're, if you're going to do this, this may, you know, adversely affect you. You know, they don't, they obviously <laughs> don't tell you, um, you know, any of the good things or any of the balanced things. They don't engage in any sort of, um, you know, equal-sided debate or conversation. It's it's solely one-sided. And, of course, they have an entire budget for those things, whereas the union organizing generally has a very, you know, minuscule budget, you know, maybe funded just by workers themselves um, or, um, or whatever, especially, you know, in a case like we had here in Albany, uh, definitely not, you know, a multi-million dollar budget. They were paying... Um, one of their union busters, $3,200 a day, a day, you know, and that's, that's not something that any workers could afford <laughs> to provide, you know, an anti-union buster for the same amount. So um, the, the tactics are pretty, pretty common and pretty disgusting. Um, mm. And so we, we saw that um, in, in both of those instances, but I think also any any of the campaigns you see um, headlines and news about the Starbucks union busting, or if you talk to the folks here locally, they're saying the exact same thing. You know, my my manager at the busiest time of the day pulls me off the floor, um, you know, causing actual crap harm for the coworkers, harm for the customers, but they don't care. It's, it's really to just create this intimidation um, and to, to really make people be like, yeah, fine, I'll just vote no. Let me get back on the floor and help people. You know, and it's kind of this, yeah. this really disgusting way of yeah. trying to, uh, you know, psychological warfare, really. Yeah, so it sounds like there are two main things going on. Uh, the scare tactic, but also abusing people's maybe lack of knowledge about how unions work and how it would have been implemented in this situation? Absolutely. And, and, and um, you know, one of the things you'll hear out of uh, ALU, ALB1, um, is, you know, they're, they're pulling people who are on disability, they're pulling people who, who are the most vulnerable, and they're exploiting that vulnerability, uh, which is just absolutely... I mean, it's horrific. It's horrific, and um, so I, I believe that the um, I believe that they said that they are going to 
um, not even try for a re-election. They're just going to say like they're going to ask the um, the NLRB for a um, a direct bargaining order because there's no way that an election could be functional. Uh, there's no, you know, they're supposed to have what they call like laboratory conditions. You know, it's supposed to be quote unquote sterilized. There's not supposed to be, you know, no electioneering, blah, 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 blah. And, and what is um, a direct bargaining? No. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, direct, a direct bargaining order. So it's just saying, look, there's no way that in, in any situation that any union vote could actually be legitimate because you're going to you're going to corner people and tell them to vote no. I mean they have big banners inside the building that say vote no. Um, isn't that illegal? And <laughs> isn't that illegal? <laughs> I mean this is exactly why. Uh yeah, but they don't care. What why would why would they care? They so they can who... break the law, they can pay a $100,000 fee and that's like water off a duck's back at that point. Oh, and so the why, penalty is just saying, paying, and so therefore it doesn't matter? Yeah, Who is yeah. the oversight here in or, that situation? Well, this is this is why there really needs to be labor law reform in this country, because even if you have the National Labor Relations Board, which is supposed to be some modicum of oversight, there's no enforcement mechanism. And mm-hmm. the enforcement mechanisms that they have are so weak that an employer is just going to be like, well... It'll cost us a hundred thousand dollars, you know, to to pay for this violation for mm-hmm. this fine. You know, we <laughs> we can easily, you know, hand that down the pipe. You know, no problem. That saves us a whole lot. Of, that actually saves them time and money, right? They don't have to. Um, so, so I believe that the direct bargaining order says it's because there could never be a vote that was not laboratory conditions safe that that was actually you know for the workers or you know safe protected um that that they are just going to like say you need to bargain mm. which is wild uh i'm excited i'm excited that that's a possibility and i'm just learning you know i just learned about that this afternoon so uh excited to see maybe the possibilities of how that plays out yeah uh it sounds like overall you sound pretty optimistic so can you talk about what the next steps are and where where you and the union organizers see moving forward at this moment? Well, usually everyone takes a step back, takes a deep breath, takes a nap, you know, whatever <laughs> whatever they can do to to really recuperate um because it is, it's a slog, it's a battle, mm-hmm. it's a fight, you know, and people are tired. So I think I think the first step is going to be just to take a breath. Um even though when I saw Chris Smalls today, the president of ALU, he mm-hmm. um, he he left he left right after the decision because he had to go out to California because they've got a warehouse out there that's unionizing, and so he doesn't get the rest, you know. But the workers here, who are the on the ground workers, who are you know having the conversations, making the phone calls, doing the work, getting harassed by management on the workroom floor, um, they're they're the ones that you know need to take a breath. But then. I mean, depending on how this uh, direct bargaining order works itself out, um, they, you know, I, I, I don't know how that will play out, frankly. I'll, I'll just be 100% honest. But uh, even, even when you have a union, you're constantly organizing. You're constantly um, kind of working to get better conditions, to stop harassment, 
to encourage workers um, and and to really make sure that um, all the the wages, the benefits, the working conditions um, are above par, you know, and are, are actually valuable for the workers. So the organizing never stops. You know, even as a union person myself, you're constantly organizing. You're constantly working to try to make sure that the workplace is better. Uh, it's what workers deserve, and workers deserve everything. So Great. I think we're just about out of time, but um, I, I feel like even if it didn't succeed in unionizing, you mentioned Chris Smalls going over to California. Mm-hmm. So this was a pretty big uh, um, news nationally. So even if it didn't uh-huh. succeed here, the fact that the organizing effort um, was greatly supported could be supporting the efforts over in California, could not? Not only that, but I think it also gives uh, rise to a, a greater sense of consciousness of our own organizing here in the capital region. And I think it, it gives people the permission that maybe they felt like they didn't have to say, we want to we want to organize like that. It it increases um, worker consciousness and the ability for for people to say, I want to reach out to some of those organizers and figure out what they did right, what they did wrong, and and organize my workplace as well. And I think that is one of the great boons to any organizing campaign. Yeah, that is really important. Appreciate you so much coming on to our program so last minute. Last um, minute. Uh, anything else you'd like to add in the last few seconds? Uh, all power to the workers. That's the way I generally end these things. Uh, workers are the majority of a workplace, and the majority of the workplace deserves to have the voice and the vote. So uh, every every worker deserves a union. Every deserve, every worker deserves to have democracy in their workplace. Thank you so much, Reverend Ibrahim Pradinan, so coming on the show, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We hope to have you on again Great soon. Great to talk to everyone. Solidarity. Solidarity. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Kalen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at Media Sanctuary. Uh, sanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's story and more at mediasanctuary.org. So what actions need to be taken to transition an entire city's built environment to be fully electric? How can we make sure that we don't leave low-income populations behind during this transition? Those are just two of the many questions that are being asked at an upcoming event from the Future of Small Cities Institute. An assembly of... For the climate action and design interested folks out there, there's some interesting events coming up at the Future of Small Cities Institute. And joining us now is the founder, Rafe Larson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Ithaca has been a model city and the subject of previous events of the Future of Small Cities Institute. And Ithaca's ambitious electric buildings plan is at the center of an upcoming event. How do we make the electric cities of the future? So can you tell us about this event and the three cities involved? Yes, yeah. So this is a a, a collaboration with the podcast network Climate Now, which does great programming 
And so we have uh, embarked on this kind of cool three-part series, and we had the first part in Ithaca, and each of these parts is concentrated on a different aspect of decarbonizing cities, because it's obviously a kind of complex, huge, sprawling idea. The first one in Ithaca was, who's going to benefit from this? Because a lot of people see the idea of making a green city, a net zero city, a real lever for equality and you know generational wealth gain in uh, historically disadvantaged communities, because there's going to be a lot of job opportunities, a, a lot of investment in places. So I think getting it right now and and making sure that these levers are in place to so that everybody is included in this process um, and that everyone benefits is really important. So we had a really robust conversation about how to make sure that, you know, this whole green workforce and green economy, the growth of it, which is going to be exponential in the next you know decade, two decades, three decades is going to be inclusive. The second part, which is taking place at the Focus Lab in Troy this Thursday, October 20th, is going to be on the how. How do we do this? What are the mechanics and what are the, um, I guess, levers at our disposal for bringing down the, the carbon footprint of our cities, which make up a large, um, you know, huge chunk of pie when we look at uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Ithaca has decided, uh, you know, they're, they're taking a multi-pronged approach, but one of their big things is electrifying and, and, and weatherizing and making their building stock hyper-efficient and doing it at scale, right? So that's that's the big thing. They've teamed up with Block Power. So they're trying to do something like 6,000 buildings um, over the course of the next uh, decade, decade and a half, which is a, which is a huge project, right? But it's a really key project, particularly for our cities in upstate New York, because we have such um, old housing stock and we can't just build our way out of this uh, climate crisis. We have to deal with what we have. So we have to become experts at um you know making our ha our our older our older houses much more efficient and then shifting towards uh, electrification which has its own complications because we can't just electrify all our houses overnight right um the load on on the grid would be way too much so we have to kind of update our infrastructure as we're convincing homeowners that this is the right thing to do that's i think the big shift too aside from the, the engineering lift is the cultural lift of of explaining to people why this is important you know everyone's busy everyone has is short on cash right um so you know why swap out your stovetop range from propane or natural gas to you know electric and why put on heat pumps and all these questions which you know are, are a lift i mean i think they're becoming less of a lift as more and more incentives start stacking up the inflation reduction act is a huge game changer in this regard um, but I think the model of Ithaca is, can we do it not just house to house, but uh, as a whole city as our sort of frame of reference? You were talking about the investment in housing and making an equitable change for the future. And in thinking about the past and what was not working then, we can think of redlining and and banks not giving the same investment to all families and has that really changed and so can we really say that this is going to be an equitable way forward um or are we still facing some of those same inequities from the past it's a really good question and i think a lot of smart people are trying to address this um if we do nothing and sort of let you know, the, the old market forces at work, it will be the same exact, repeating the same exact mistakes, right? So 
people with time and money will efficient will put efficiency measures in their house and in, and invest in this technology and, and reap the benefits. Because the other thing about electric homes too is that they're healthier, right? So the air is better, climate is better. It's not just like a you know a greening thing. It's 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 a health issue as well. But it takes time, money, and investment. And in the past, you know, we've gotten into these cycles of uh, unaffordable housing or predatory landlords who have no incentives to um, to improve their houses and just you know want to get rent money and will kick people out as soon as they don't pay rent. So how how do you get those people on board? So it's going to take active energy and it's going to take you know the getting the housing authorities on on board. There's some really interesting work. The New York Housing Authority just signed a huge deal with a heat pump company. So you're starting to see at scale for affordable housing and more and more affordable, new affordable housing projects, installing some of these efficiency and electrification methods. But again, it's a cultural change and, and contractors that like Habitat for Humanity works with need to adjust their supply chains and adjust their housing materials and adjust their HVAC solutions, right? Which is an ask, everything's an ask. So getting all the various pieces on board, the contractors, the construction folks, the developers, the homeowners, all on board is is a process. Um, but I think it's really critical. And I think we're seeing a sea change at the federal level, at the state level, and also at the local level to address exactly what you said. How do we make sure that we don't repeat the kind of systems and cycles of inequity that we've seen in the past? It's a big investment on the spot, and it becomes cheaper in the future. So you do have to have a certain amount of, of a cushion in order to implement this for the long-term benefit, right? Absolutely, yeah. And we'll be talking about that a little bit on Thursday. Part three of the series, which takes place um, at Yale and New Haven, is really on the financing side, because that's that's the, the real nut to crack, too. We're getting there, but I think um, what's interesting is to make this so affordable and so enticing for both the homeowner and the city at large, right? So. I think where we're heading is that a company like Black Power, and we have a panelist, Cullen from Black Power, can approach a city like Troy with an economic package that's, that makes so much sense over the course of 10, 20, 30 years that the, the return on investment and the risk, frankly, for the city of Troy is so low that they can sign on, right? And I think to get there, you have to leverage both the state funding that um, places like NYSERDA offer the federal funding that's embodied in the Inflation Reduction Act, but also private capital too. And I think you're starting to see that, that a lot of private capital companies and investment funds are wanting to get into this decarbonizing municipality game. And they're starting to see that there is a return on investment, you know, over the course of 20 and 30 years, aside from the, obviously the, the moral and climate benefits, they're there, they want to make these deals too. Um, it looks good for their portfolio. But it's going to take some creativity. And I think um, one of our panelists who I've had before and is a real um, maestro at this is Luis, who just he's actually just transitioned out of being the director of sustainability for Ithaca to he's now um, working for Rewiring America. But he is a real master at leveraging a number of different funds to to pay for this. And every city can't have a Luis. So I think one of our challenges is how do we take the lessons from Ithaca? package it, streamline it, make it simple so that 
the next wave of cities, which I hope includes city, cities like Troy, Schenectady, and Albany, all of whom I would characterize as sustainable curious, right? That they're they're not they haven't jumped in fully, but they want to, but they want to be shown that risk is low and potential upside is high. So we so we have to make that package feasible for for the city the next wave of cities, the the 2.0s and then the 3.0s down the line. We are out of time, but you do have another event that we're just going to put on the radar, the New Island Project with artist-in-residence Jack McGuy, friend of the sanctuary. Can you just give us a little teaser and close out our interview? Yes. So the Focus Lab, I've always imagined having this kind of artistic component. We have these revolving exhibitions, and I wanted a local artists to react and sort of mull over and marinate on the t- the subject of the of the exhibition. So the, our first exhibition is coming to a close at the end of October. It's on Hudson waterfronts. Jack, a lot of his work is around this kind of experimental uh, psychogeographic wandering, seeing old or battered places in new ways. So I thought he was a perfect match. So we're doing a really exciting participatory involved performance where audience members will be walking with Jack along the shoreline to a secret place um, and participating in the performance. It's it's going to be a co-creation event. Um, so I really encourage you to put on your walking shoes and uh, dress appropriately. Um, it's October 29th, 2 p.m. Um, and you can register on the Future of Small Cities website. For more information on the Futures of Small Cities Institute, go to their website, www.futuresofsmallcities.org. On October 4th, Roaming Labor Correspondent Willie Terry attended a special meeting of HVCC President Dr. Roger A. Ramsamy speaking to the college community about his work and vision for the future in light of the controversy around his tenure. This is part two of the raw and uncut recording. What an awesome question. Let me just say this first to begin with. Why do I do what I do? It means telling you a story about who I am. And that means I have to tell you the story. So, Regina, let me get the microphone so that I can make sure that I see it. And you can hear me. All right, not too loud. (laughs) Who am I? I am someone who came from a place in a mountainside in Trinidad in which most people they cook on the outside, that's what I was brought up with. Not having a house or a house stove and those things. So the values that we had as kids growing up wasn't about material things, it's about living. When I came to this country, I came to this country knowing fully well that I wanted to be, I came by through sports, I didn't get here because I was educated or smart. When I got here, I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. And that's all I was interested in doing, nothing else. But I went through some tough times. And when I got to where I get, when I started off as a, a, a student to when I finished, I'm skipping a whole lot of sad stories to tell you, but when I was done, I applied to 12 schools in my life, 12 schools. I was accepted at 11 of them, Mayo Clinic, Cornell, Johns Hopkins, beautiful schools. I was given one of the positions I was interested in taking was the Mayo Clinic. I was going to be the first black person to be in the Mayo Clinic. When I came back to Washington, D.C., here's what happened. 
There was a big celebration going on, Georgetown and Howard, for what I did. And whilst they were celebrating me, I had to figure out for myself, whilst they're proud and very proud of me, I had to reflect back on what I was I going to do with my life. But I recognized there were four people in my life who changed, who held my hands and pulled me forward, four. And I decided that I'm no longer going to be devoting my life to do anything for what I thought I was going to do, but changing other people's lives. And I decided to go to a community college and teach from an $85,000 job to a $29,000 job. Think about that. Because money means nothing to me, nothing. I do not do anything for money. I do it because every day I get one day closer to here, and the more people I can pull from behind forward is what I do. Changing lives, thousands and thousands of students who English is their second language. What I taught in genetics and microbiology was the third language but I had to make sure that those kids can be successful in what they, do, they were doing. And it required taking the time to do what people did for me. And that's why I did what I did. And today, that's what I do here. I am here because I accepted the task of taking this college from the dull drums of going downward in its enrollment, in which one day, if it had continued, we'll have to lay off to stabilizing the college to where it is. And now we are very stable. And now we're looking to do what? Grow. We can grow. And once we begin to grow, the job is done. And I can do what? Feel good that I came in to do this. This is what I took on, and I accomplished the task. With everybody having their job, feeling happy about what they do, because no one is trying to do what? Take away their jobs from them. No one. How can we continue with communication amongst each other? The biggest problem that occurs in life today, right? The biggest one is us being worried about how people interpret things. We are afraid to come out and ask each other honest questions. We are afraid to just come out and talk to each other. I do whatever I can because I know that that's a serious problem. So I do things like what I'm doing here. I do coffee hours. I do town hall meetings. I do, someone said, this shouldn't say this word, but I do that 15 minute dating game where I open it up and ask people, come on for 15 minutes, just you and I, nobody else. So you can tell me whatever you want. And it would never be held against you because it can stay with me. So that we could always do what? I can hear the things that are bothering you. I can hear the things, the answers to things that you always wondered, you know, that you needed to find out about. I can tell you. I do everything to make sure that communication is done. We have the chronicle. We are putting things inside of the chronicle. Communication is the key to everything. Communication. If someone, and I always said this, if someone is speaking and you, you, you want an answer, isn't it better to go directly to the individuals and ask them? So we're working really, really hard to create more conversations like these. 
and as much more ideas that come from you, because again, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a genius, but if there are more ways we could engage each other, let's do it. Let's engage each other in different ways. You share with me what you want or what can be done so that we can continuously talk about these things and solve the problems. If there's a problem, why would you allow it to fester when a simple conversation can do what? Eradicate it. Why? If you are having difficulties getting your textbook from the bookstore and you come and you tell me, what would I do? I would walk you straight over to the bookstore and we would do what? Solve the problem. Isn't that something you and I did? Absolutely. Exactly. Anyone who comes to me with an idea, never will they walk away without getting some kind of a response. From the day that I entered into this institution, I said, the one problem we always in to have is communication. And I don't have the answer on how to solve it other than doing what I do here. Now, I know we've run to the end of this, but I just want to take a few seconds now to end this evening. You know, over the last, over the last few months, the college has changed. There's so much things that are happening, so much stuff that seem imbalanced. We were, we were going on a very positive trajectory. And I'm still on my positive trajectory. I'm still going to keep it positive and real. But I don't think for an institution like ours, where we have people, I mean, almost every position on our campus is someone who has a what? A bachelor's or master's degree. He's an educated, this is an educated institution where everyone is educated enough to be able to think on their own. Everyone is able to think on their own. And I would say to everyone, listen, why can't we be truthful in everything that we do? Do it for the good of who? Why are we here? We're here for our students. That's why we're here. We are employed by the college to serve students. Why can't we all put our heads together and figure out how we can do things the right way to serve our students? Why can't we? Why is we, we have to get away from everything being about us? Because we will come and we will go, but this institution is going to stay right here serving our students. And what we do today, remember this, it's always true. What we do today is going to live on with us. It's going to live on. Remember what I've always ended by telling folks. What did Denzel Washington always say? Before you go to bed at night, you slip as far under the bed. So that the next morning, when you get on your knees to reach for it, stop. Say a prayer. Say, thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given me. And I'm going to live this day truthfully. I'm going to live it honestly. I'm going to do good for everybody the best way that I can. Put your slippers on and go about your day doing just that. Because when the day comes and it ends, when you're in that coffin going to that grave, there's not a U-Haul behind you with all the stuff that you own that's going into the grave. It's not going. So forget the material things. And remember, just as a famous Maya Angelou says, people are not going to remember you for what you did or what you say. 
but they're going to remember you for how you made them feel. Remember that. I thank you all for coming this evening. I thank you for having the patience to listen to me. And I thank you for your questions, your honest questions. And I hope we can do a lot more of this in time to come. Thank you. To hear the first part of this segment, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. And we end tonight's show with a new weekly poetry series by Tom Francis of Hudson Valley Writers Guild using archival footage and more current interviews. Dan Wilcox has been a major part of the local poetry community since the 1980s. He was a member of Three Guys from Albany with Charlie Rossiter and the late Tom Nattel. He is a familiar face at many literary and arts events in the area, almost always with his camera in hand, as he claims to have the world's largest collection of photos of unknown poets. He currently hosts the third Thursday Poetry Night at the Social Justice Center on Central Avenue in Albany, New York. On October 16, 2018, Dan shared his poem, Waiting for Jacqueline Robinson, at the Brass Tacks Open Mic at the Low Beat on Central Ave. At the empty college backstop, I bring a bucket of baseballs, throw them to Anna at the plate, tell her to swing it. Everyone watch the ball and hit it. Her coach says, why did she swing? It was over her head. I say, she hit it, got on base. At this age, they throw strikes by accident. She is small, fast, knocks down boys blocking the plate. I tell her, you could be the first woman Major League Baseball player. Of course, she has other ideas. Now she helps people stay well, is gentle and kind, what she wants to do. In the summer, we keep score at ball games. I am still waiting for Jacqueline Robinson to make that great play at second base. Dan has a few poems about baseball. In fact, he has a chapbook, Baseball Poems, dedicated to the sport. I wanted to know a little bit more about the intersection of poetry and baseball and what inspired him to write that poem about his daughter maybe one day becoming the first female Major League Baseball player. It started when I was a kid. My father was a baseball fan and, you know, got me a crappy glove and we'd go out in the backyard and toss a ball around. And then I... Um, joined little league and uh i play. I, I was a lousy player i didn't really <laughs> care about it uh but uh, uh there was one time when um i was on a team and uh i wasn't being played a lot you know and it was uh it was a team where you had the full uniform rather than just a t-shirt and this was like the, the majors you know oh, wow and i don't know how i got picked because i really was crappy um, and they didn't have any rules about everybody has to play a certain amount each game and all that. And um, I was, uh, I just wanted to play baseball, even though I wasn't good at it. I liked it. And I went to the manager and I said, I want to go down to the next level below. And he said, why do you want to do that? You know, cause everybody wanted a full uniform and all that. And I said, cause I want to play baseball. So but that was it, my, my career, because when, when it got to the Babe Ruth 
um, so many of those guys were so much bigger than me and everything. I was just going to be overpowered. So I just didn't, and I never played any kind of competitive baseball since then, but I enjoy the game and I enjoy watching it. And, uh, like I've always learned to keep score. All my kids know how to keep score, you know, like train them all. Um, and, uh, it just, it just became part of my life. Now intertwining it with poetry. I, I look at it like, um, Allen Ginsberg talked about this too. They that it's just a part of my life, and I write about everything in my life. And so baseball is another thing that I write about in my life. So it's not um, intertwining or anything like that. It's it's no different than if I wrote a poem about my kids or about being at a peace demonstration or or getting laid or anything like that. <laughs> That's basically it, you know. And I don't have a whole lot of poems about baseball. I did publish a, a small chapbook in 2019 for when I was going down to the Scissor Tail Creative Writing Festival in Oklahoma. It's just called Baseball Poems. And I mean, there may be a couple other poems that aren't included in that, that little book, but uh, um, that, that's where I kind of put, pulled them all together. My um, youngest daughter, Anna was growing up. She got interested in playing baseball. She was a dabbler. She did everything. I was step dancing, ballet, uh, track, basketball, and baseball. Um, my other kids were more focused, but she was kind of dabbling around. She was really, really good at baseball. Uh, this is like at the lower level kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because she, she was fast. And uh, so I wanted to make sure that when she played, she would get on base. So um, her grandparents lived out behind uh, Siena College. So I went and I got just about every baseball I could find in the house. And I had quite a few bucket of baseball. And I took her out there to one of the backstops at uh, um, Siena College. And I was throwing pitches at her. And I said, I want you to swing at everything I throw at you, even if it's over your head. (laughs) Because... You know, you can't wait for that perfect pitch. And particularly in Little League, you can't because, as I say in the poem, you know, kids at that age, they don't throw strikes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted her to be able to hit something and, and, and train her eye. And that was the main thing, to train your eye on watching the ball and then, then hitting it. So, you know, we did that maybe once or twice. I don't know how many times. And I would coach her in baseball. I would tell her things that, you know, to to – augment her speed her natural speed and i would say like once she'd be playing a game and there'd be a guy standing in the baseline where she's running from like first to second and i said you got to run right through him he's not supposed to be there he can't block the pace i said you just got to run through him and one time she was running home and the catcher was blocking the plate and she pushed him out of the way and and the ump the ump said to the manager uh that girl was a little rough on that guy. <laughs> I, was so proud. I was so proud of her for doing that. Um, so that's where that, uh, that poem kind of came from that, because I was thinking also, I'm a firm believer that, uh, I mean, I'm not a very big guy, but there are guys in um, Major League Baseball who are my size and even smaller, but who are Altuve, mm-hmm. for example, who are excellent baseball players. They're, they're fast and they have a good eye and they can hit and they can um, field. And uh, there are women playing 
softball. Mostly they're playing softball, which Anna never moved up to because she didn't like softball. She liked the regular hardball. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are women athletes. Of course, they're much better than me. They're athletes and stuff. So why can't they play baseball like the guys play baseball? You know? And, and someone like Aaron Judge is such a – he's an anomaly because he's so big. You know? Right. He doesn't have to be. But there's a lot of baseball players that are no, normal, quote, unquote, size. And so women can certainly do that, particularly athletic women. So I was thinking of Jackie Robinson and how, you know, the first black um, baseball player in the major leagues. And uh, I thought, you know, I want to I want to and I'm still saying this. I want to live long enough to see that first woman professional major league baseball player. Dan has a number of projects that he's involved in, including the Poetic License Albany Exhibit, a joint project between the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and Upstate Artists Guild, currently on display through October at Lark Hall. And he was recently invited by Paul Grandel of the New York State Writers Institute to be part of a collaboration with the great Charlie Rossiter. Paul asked if I'd be willing to write a short poem for them uh, on collaboration. Made lots of different notes and stuff, and then I said, ah, it's just right in front of me. The three guys from Albany. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a collaborative effort. Absolutely. So I started making notes on it. And then I said, well, you know what? Let me let me see if Charlie wants to buy into it. So anyway, I, I, I called Charlie and I said, hey, Charlie, you want to buy in on this project? I said, just, you know, I said, I got a pretty good idea what I'm doing. But so he just sent me about three, four emails with uh, all kinds of three guys from Albany memories and stuff like that. You know, it's just about a page long. Uh, I just sent it off this morning to to Grandel. I haven't heard from him. And uh, I think the event's coming up pretty soon. So uh, I may be able to read it at the event. At least I hope I can. When not taking photos at the events he attends, Dan also takes notes and posts them on his website, along with poems and other musings, at dwlcx.blogspot.com. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. This was Tom Francis's premier story for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. He will be bringing us weekly poetry segments. So, stay tuned. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Kayla McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We also want to thank all our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Bria Barthel, Tom Francis, and our two co-hosts, Sina Bazilahecki, my amazing co-host for tonight, and, and me, Kaylin McPherson. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to media... to to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and on your favorite podcast platforms. So thanks, you all, for listening, and tune in next time.